Again, good morning. Thank you guys for all coming out this morning. Why don't we go ahead and pray before we start. Lord God, we again just thank you for a great morning. And as has been sung and as has been prayed, you are so awesome. And we thank you, Lord God, for all that you give us, for all that you do for us and how you provide for us, Lord God, in the good times and in the bad. And we thank you, Lord God, that we have the assurance of your presence with us, the assurance of salvation, and the assurance, Lord God, that you work all things together for your good to those who are called according to your purpose. And the assurance, Lord God, that one day you will return and you will rule and reign with justice and mercy and you will make all things right. And so we look forward to that day, Lord God. Until then, Lord God, may you empower us to glorify you and live for you. We pray that you would speak that hope to us this morning as we read through your word, and we pray this in your name, amen. Well, good morning again. Uh, The title of this morning's message is The Reality of Hope. And the reason I say that is because usually when you say hope, sometimes it can be more like we're crossing our fingers that something's going to happen, or we're wishing that this happens. There's not real assurance you know, when you say hope, depending on the context of the use. But, you know, we all need hope in our life. Hope is a common sentiment, if you think about it. Even in the little things, you're hoping for the eighth hour at work so you can go home, right? Or maybe you're like, dude, I work 10 hours. I'm hoping for that 10th hour. Whatever it is, you have that hope at the end of the day that you're going home. Or you're hoping or waiting for the weekend, You know, there's always something coming, something better is coming, something gives you hope to look forward to, the end of the day, the end of the weekend, the end of the summer, or summer coming, or for me, like Christmas is coming right around the corner, the the hope that, you know, this is going to be even better Christmas than last year, something to that effect, but it's the assurance, right, of something better is coming. Could you imagine, though, if you don't have that hope, that there is nothing better, that whatever position you are in life, whether it's at work or a relationship, you know, some people are at that point where, like, this is it. They have no hope. Could you imagine living with that reality in your life, that there is no hope? It's called the absence of hope, which is despair, desperation, depression. Imagine living in total darkness with ever hoping for light to come through. As I was reading up a little bit on the absence of hope, that was one way it was described, is like total darkness without ever any hope of light shining through. And if you know scripture, being apart from God, part of the description of hell is total darkness. Can you imagine that, being in total darkness without ever of any hope of seeing light or seeing your hands in front of you? How scary would that be? And yet that is one of the ways that Scripture describes hell, total darkness. Is hope, though, just a frame of mind? Is it just wishful thinking? You know, or hope, again, as I started, we're hoping. Even in the Christian life, we talk about hope a lot. You know, we're hoping in the Lord. We're hoping for His return. We have this great hope. 
Again, is it just a frame of mind that we get ourselves into, or wishful thinking, or is it real? I would say it is real because that word hope gives us, again, a misunderstanding of what the true meaning is. A better word for the Christian would be assurance. We have the promised assurance that the Lord is going to return. We have the promised assurance of salvation. We have the promised assurance that the Lord is with us and He will never leave us or forsake us. A matter of fact, in Hebrews chapter 6, verse 19, this is in your bulletin. It's that verse right there. The writer says this, This hope we have as an anchor of the soul. And the bulletin, I mistyped it, so sorry. It's not an actor, it's real. This hope we have is an anchor of the soul. So think of an anchor, something that grounds you, that holds you still. That's what hope is. It's a hope both sure, meaning assurance, it's for real, and steadfast, and one which enters within the veil. And we can go before the presence of God. This is the assurance that we have. This is a better description of hope. And this is why I said it's the reality of hope. Again, this hope we have as an anchor of the soul, our faith in Christ, a hope both sure and steadfast and one which enters within the veil. And so this morning as we turn to our text in Isaiah chapter 32, so despite all the coming destruction that Isaiah is just wave upon wave issuing upon the nation of Israel, despite the coming destruction, he always offers that light at the end, that hope, a glimmer of hope. You see, the whole nation has not abandoned God. When we read scripture like this, we're thinking every person in Judah has turned their back on God, but that's not true. There is always spoken of in Isaiah of a remnant, a small group that still has faith in God. Again, not all of them have been given over to idolatrous worship or rebellion or total disobedience. There is this remnant. And in the text this morning, Isaiah is going to speak to both groups about this hope, this future hope that is coming. And in one sense, the hope is given to the remnant so that they can continue to hold on. It could be that anchor for their soul. And on the other end, those who have fallen away, who have rebelled and given over to idolatrous worship, it's in hope that they'll wake up and come back to the Lord or turn to the Lord for the first time. So let's go ahead and, and look at our text this morning, and let's just read the first few verses here that Isaiah speaks to Judah. So open up your Bibles, Isaiah 32. If you don't have a Bible, open up a black Bible in front of you in the pew, or if you prefer, open your phone. You can, I don't know, scroll to Isaiah 32, right? Okay, Isaiah 32, the prophet writes this, Behold, a king will reign righteously, and princes will rule justly. So let's stop right there. At the very beginning, you can see he's, if you've been with us for a while now, you know that the leadership in Judah is not good. And as a matter of fact, it's the leadership that Isaiah speaks to quite often because they've been misleading the people of God, whether it's the political leadership or the spiritual leadership of Judah. They're the ones that Isaiah speaks to predominantly in the text. And here he's saying, you know what? There is a king coming in the future who will reign righteously. 
and princes on top of that will rule justly. So here Isaiah is giving them a look into this future that there is something coming that, you know what, one day, he's telling Israel, we're going to have righteous leaders. We're going to have righteous and just rulers. A government will reign and rule in godliness and how they needed that. Because, again, they're being misled away from God entering into treaties with foreign nations as we've been studying over the past few months. They continually do that and lead them astray. Rarely do they lead them back towards God. So again, those he has speaking to, they have not had a godly government, right? They, again, they've had a government that's lured them away, turned them to idolatrous worship, given them even false hope and false gods, and the leadership has told them to basically trust everything but the Lord God of Israel. And so Isaiah is saying, Behold, one day a king will reign righteously and princes will rule justly. And then he goes in and he describes what good leadership would be like. And look what he says in verse 2 as he describes it. He says, Each will be like a refuge from the wind, a shelter from the storm like streams of water in a dry country, like the shade of a huge rock in a parched land. And so this is his description. There's a refuge, a shelter, streams of water. It talks about protection and support. That's what good leadership should provide, protection and support. This is what Isaiah is describing here. And then Isaiah describes, as we move on to verses 3 through 5, Isaiah is going to describe the results of having a righteous and just leadership. It's really about spiritual transformation. This will be made possible because they have great leadership. If you contrast that, if you just for a second turn back in your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 6. I'm sure you don't remember the last time we were in Isaiah chapter 6, but... It was probably over a year ago when we were there. In Isaiah chapter 6, look at verse 10. No, that's the wrong verse. Anyways, somewhere in the Bible. No, it is. It is verse 10. I'm sorry. If you look at Isaiah verse 10, he says this, Render the hearts of this people insensitive, their ears dull and their eyes dim, otherwise they might see with their eyes hear with their ears, and understand with their hearts, and return and be healed. So what we're going to read in Isaiah 32 is in contrast to this, bad leadership means that for the people that are leading, that their eyes remain dim, and they can't hear, they can't see, they have no understanding because of the bad leadership. And in here in Isaiah 32, he's going to say because of good leadership, their eyes will be open, their ears will hear. Look at what it says in Isaiah Verses 3 through 5 in chapter 32, he says, Then, because of this just and righteous ruler, then their eyes, the eyes of those who see, will not be blinded. The ears of those who hear will listen. And the mind of the hasty will discern the truth. And the tongue of the stammerers will hasten to speak clearly. No longer will the fool be called noble or the rogue be spoken of as generous. So again, here, he's just given this reversal that when you have good leadership, they cultivate growth. 
They cultivate somebody excelling in what they do and maybe even thinking at your own place of business. If you've had a really good leader, a boss, a supervisor, they encourage you to grow in your position, to become better, to learn new things, and you thrive at that. Now, if you have a bad supervisor or boss, they kind of keep everything to themselves. They don't encourage you to grow. They restrict that. And that's the principle that Isaiah is saying here, is that when you have a good leader, you will prosper. Those under them will prosper. So not only will they hear, they'll see. With their mind, they'll be able to understand things. They'll speak truth. These are all the examples that he's giving. And they're going to have the ability, he says in verse 5, to discern character based on character and not be blinded by status. An example of this would be is that we give celebrities in our culture platforms just because they have power, wealth, and fame. And so we give them a platform and we don't really judge them on their character. And we listen to them because of what they have instead of actually who they are. And so Isaiah is saying that this time comes when we have great leadership, that those who are blind, they cannot hear, they actually be able to discern in noble character. Again, this is in contrast to the leadership that restricts and doesn't allow you to thrive. And just by an aside, what are Christians called to do when you have bad leadership, when you have bad government in any form? What are we called to do? To revolt? To overthrow them? Let me direct you to 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. Because what Timothy calls for us to do is to pray for our leaders. 1 Timothy chapter 2. Let me read this. I think this is particularly important for us in our life as we come to a point in our history of, you know, we're going to enter an election year, and maybe you're trying to formulate, hey, who do I vote for? What do I, what should I be doing? What do I do if both of them are, I don't like anybody? Well, probably the first thing we should do is what Timothy calls us to do in 1 Timothy, excuse me, what Paul calls us to do in 1 Timothy chapter 2. He says this, first of all then, I urge that entreaties and prayers, petitions, and thanksgiving be made on behalf of all men for kings and all who are in authority, so that we may lead a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. I think that's what we need to do as a church. We need, and I know that the prayer group does that on Monday nights. We need to pray for our leaders, our city leaders, our state leaders, our federal leaders, the President of the United States we need to pray for as well. We need to pray that God would that they would, first of all, turn to God, that they would listen to God. And I like what Timothy says here in, at the bottom of verse chapter 2. He says to pray for them, why? That we may lead a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. We need to pray, this is maybe my takeaway from this, that the government leaves us alone. <laughs> Doesn't take away our, our rights to worship God as we see fit. Doesn't come in and tell us how we may worship who we may worship, who can lead our church, who can translate the Bible for us, or even if we can use our Bible. I think we need to pray for leaders that will leave us alone in one sense and not come in and try to tell us all the things that we can and cannot do. 
So when we don't like our leadership, when we have an issue with our leadership, the first thing that we should be doing is praying for them, praying to them on behalf that they might come to the Lord, that they might seek wisdom, they might have godly people around them to influence them and pray that they would turn to the Lord because we will all feel the consequence if we put in bad leadership. So just a little aside there. So again, Isaiah is talking about the type of leadership that we need to have or that one day will come and gives us a description of the things that will happen when that comes. Let's go back to our text now. And in verses 6 through 8, Isaiah gives a short poem within his prophecy here to further explain verse 5 about a noble and foolish person. And he's contrasting the two in verses 6 through 8. And he says this, For a fool speaks nonsense, and his heart is inclined toward wickedness, to practice ungodliness and to speak air against the Lord, to keep the hungry person unsatisfied and to withhold drink from the thirsty. So you can see a foolish person describes her as they lack moral sensitivity. They are keeping things from other people. And then he goes on to verse 7 and describes what he calls a rogue and a rogue is, is somebody that's, I would say, is really all about promoting themselves through deception and divisiveness or being devious. They've gone rogue. They've gone off track, so to speak. They're being, you know, I, I think of that Star Wars movie, Rogue One, where they were sneaking in. And so that's a rogue person. They're sneaky. And so he says in verse 7, as for a rogue, his weapons are evil. He devises wicked schemes to destroy the afflicted with slander, even though the needy one speaks what is right. So a foolish person just keeps everything from everybody, but a rogue goes in there and takes and thinks how he can use the situation for his own self to make himself better. And then he contrasts that with a noble person in verse 8. He says, but a noble man devises noble plans, and by noble plans... He stands. So he's talking about here, that if you were to look at the Hebrew definition of the word that's used for noble, it's talking about there's a generous and large-hearted character, meaning instead of taking, they're giving. They're generous with what they have because they trust in God, and so they don't think they need to hoard things and keep it to themselves. They're generous with what they have, and so they make generous plans, and they stand on their trust in God which is his noble plan for security and for provision. And so this is what Isaiah is talking about in describing, going back to verse 5, the foolish person, the noble person, or the rogue, that you will be able to discern between those people as we have just and righteous leadership because you're growing in the Lord. And this is what he's telling Judah, that one day the hope is, is that these things will happen is we're going to have some good leadership people that direct us and guide us towards God. Let's move on now to the next text. So he offers this hope of this future for the nation. But in offering hope for those that will listen, again, as I mentioned at the beginning, he also has to pronounce some judgment to wake some people up. That, hey, you know what? Even though hope is coming, when hope comes, God is also going to bring judgment on those 
who refused to turn to him. And so he speaks here in verse 9. Let's read this from verse 9 to verse 14. He uses the women as they are celebrating as the picture of people not paying attention of what's going on. And look at what he says. He says, rise up, you women who are at ease, and hear my voice. Give ear to my word, you complacent daughters. So these women are enjoying what they have. They're complacent. They're at ease. That all things are going good, so there's no reason to wake up. They're unaware of the judgment that is coming. That's the picture Isaiah is painting. And he says in verse 10, Within a year and a few days you will be troubled, O complacent daughters, for the vintage has ended. Tremble, you women who are at ease. Be troubled, you complacent daughters. Strip, undress, put sackcloth on your waist. Beat your breasts for the pleasant fields, for the fruitful vine, for the land of my people in which thorns and briars shall come up. Yea, for all the joyful houses and for the jubilant city, because the palace has been abandoned, the populated city forsaken. Hill and watchtower have become caves forever, a delight for wild donkeys and a pasture of flocks. So Isaiah is alluding to that in the future, the Assyrian army is going to come down. As you know, we've been talking about this for some time. That Assyria is going to come down and destroy this city. There's going to be no more dancing. There's going to be no more complacency. And if you sit and continue to not be aware of the sign of the times, he's telling them, you're going to be caught off guard. What you should be doing now is mourning. So he describes in the, their fashion how they would mourn, you know, hitting their chest, crying out, lamenting, wailing for what is going to happen to them in a short time because their city is going to be destroyed. They're going to be taken away. And so Isaiah is trying to wake them up. Even sometimes us, right, we can get complacent in our own life. When all things are going great, we tend to say, yeah, you know, God is good. Everything's going good. You might just slack off a little bit because it's usually when things are going bad that we start to, oh, yeah, I need to. I should pray and ask God to help me through this. But when things are going good, you know, hey, God's blessing me. Everything's going good. You know, I don't really need to do all those things that I did before. Don't get complacent. Wake up because judgment is coming. He's telling the people of Judah. And I want to point out a few things particularly that he says that we need to pay attention to. Go back to verse 10. He says, within a year and a few days... Why would God, why would Isaiah say that within a year and a few days? Does that literally mean, and it could be that, hey, one year and a few days, judgment is coming. So you guys need to get ready for that. That would be nice if we were to get specifics like that, right? Even in the return of the Lord, what, is it, what does Scripture tell us? That nobody knows the day or the hour. That Christ's return will be like a thief in the night. That we will not be aware. That there will be eating and drinking and giving in marriage. And we will be caught off guard if we're not paying attention to the signs of the time. So we need to, to notice that kind of language in the text. I think what also is being said is that there is a determined time. That God allows certain things to happen. But there is a point when God says, that's it, no more, that's enough. So even with the nation of Israel, they're getting complacent because, hey, God hasn't judged us yet. Matter of fact, we're partying, you know, the vines are are growing, 
The babies are being born. It looks like he's blessing the nation of Judah despite them worshiping idols in the vineyards and in the mountains and in the high places. They look at it, hey, God must be happy with us. You know, they still went to temple or worshiped God on Saturday, but then the other days of the week, they were worshiping their idols. And that could be happening in our society. We come to church on Sunday, right? We do what we're the good Christian community is supposed to do. But what about on Monday through Saturday? Are you bowing down to idols of some sort? And you're thinking, well, God's blessing it because I'm going to church on Sunday. So Monday through Saturday is my time to do what I want to do. We would do well to take that warning as well as the women of Judah, you know, to rise up and be aware. Don't get complacent. Don't think things that God is blessing things if you are being disobedient to him just by his patience and mercy towards you. God is very patient and merciful and long-suffering towards us as he is with the nation of Israel here. I was talking to somebody the other day about this, and they were saying, you know, the Old Testament is really just full of God judging and, you know, coming hard and being, and then the New Testament is all about love, but not really. I I hope you notice that as we go through the Old Testament, how long-suffering and patient God is to his people. He's putting up with them over and over again. He's calling out to them. He's reaching out to them. It's not just law and destruction. He's given them law, and he's promised destruction if they don't turn to him, if they continue to fall away from him, if they continue to worship other gods, then yes, that happens. And that's said in the New Testament as well. Just read the book of Revelation and see how vengeful and wrathful God seems there. So this is what is going on. Israel is being told to wake up. Again, don't be at ease thinking just because everything is going well that God's happy. God is not happy. Remember, he keeps sending prophets to the nation telling them to wake up. And so let's move on to verse 15 now. So in verse 15 and through 19, Isaiah now tells them when this kingdom will come or how this kingdom will come about. So verse 15, he taught, again, after he's concluded talking about judgment coming and asking for the people to wake up because of the coming destruction, he says, basically, until the Spirit is poured out upon upon us from on high and the wilderness becomes a fertile field and the fertile field is considered as a forest then justice will dwell in the wilderness and righteousness will abide in the fertile field and the work of righteousness will be peace and the service of righteousness quietness and confidence forever then my people will live in a peaceful habitation and in secure dwellings and in undisturbed resting places So even though, yes, judgment is coming, God promises, you know, it only comes to a certain extent. And when I pour my spirit upon my people, then righteousness and peace and justice come. So he's saying, this is going to happen until I determine that it's no longer going to happen. And the same thing is true for us in our world. Our world may look like it's going to hell in a handbasket. Especially if you, you know, listen to any news media outlet. Both, they're blaming Democrats. They're blaming Republicans. Both are going to destroy our world. And guess what? They are. It doesn't really matter. I hope you don't pin your salvation on Donald Trump or any of the other 20 Democratic hopeful nominees for president. Neither one of them is going to save us unless they turn to God. 
unless they give their lives to God. So that's going to be as political as I'll get this morning on those, that issue. But the point being, it, judgment is only going to last until God decides that it is no longer going to be. He's going to intervene. And here in verse 15, he says, these things are going to happen until the Spirit is poured out on us from on high. God is going to intervene. The Spirit of God will be poured out, and God will end evil in our life and in this world. And he's telling that to Judah as well. The destruction of Assyria is only going to come until he pours his Spirit out on them and saves them, which he ultimately does. Pastor John talked about that. I think it was last week where Assyria comes to the door. They're about to, to destroy Judah. And then all of a sudden they're destroyed or they leave and they, they just leave. They just drop their weapons and go home. Right? That's recorded in Scripture and it wasn't recorded in... I forgot what John had, that picture of that... Something from Assyria. What was it called, John? A prism? Sennacherib's prism. You're like, okay, yeah, Sennacherib's prison. That's why I love history. That's why I got involved in history. Like, wow, it's so intertwined in our faith. It's amazing. It proves out the Bible. Anyways, that was an aside. But God said, no, Sennacherib, you're not coming in here. Assyria is not going to destroy my people. God decides to intervene and saves them for some reason, even though we're hearing the before where Isaiah is saying, Assyria is going to come and destroy you. But they don't. God's going to pour His Spirit out and save them. God determines when and how this will happen. God plans it. God has the method. God has the timing. He wants Judah to trust in Him, to trust Him for all these things. And in verses 16 and 18, we get a glimpse of what life would be like for those who trust in God. Look at verse 16 and 17 again. He says, Then justice will dwell in the wilderness... And righteousness will abide in the fertile field. So there's justice, there's righteousness, meaning those were doing things that are right with God. And the work of righteousness will be peace. There's going to be peace. And the service of righteousness will be quietness and confidence forever or security. And then he says in verse 18, Then my people will live in a peaceful habitation and in the secure dwellings, and in undisturbed resting places. That's what we all long for in this life, I'd hope. Just to want to go about, as First Timothy said, just want to go about in our business and worship the Lord God without anybody bothering us. That's all we want. And Isaiah says here that this is what happens when you give your life to the Lord. Righteousness and justice rule in your life. You have quietness and peace with God in your life. Do you not have that now for those of you that have trusted in the Lord? Amidst all the turmoil and chaos, you have quietness and peace in your soul. It is anchored. You have that hope that has anchored your soul. No matter the chaos going on in the world and even sometimes in your life, you know that God is in control of my life. God has a plan, a method, a timing. He's doing this for a reason. That's something non-believers do not have. When you're not right with God, then you start trying to grab at all these other things to anchor your soul instead of trusting in the Lord. 
And again, like the foolish and rogue person, that's what they're doing. They don't trust the Lord, so they're good. I'm going to take from this guy. I'm going to scheme and devise and do this to that person because I'm going to make myself safe. I'm going to bring security for myself. I'm not going to leave it to some God that I don't see. They don't have that assurance. To them, God is a hope, a wish. But to the real believer, God is an anchor to that soul. And he gives justice and righteousness. He gives you quietness and confidence forever. And you live in a peaceful habitation, in secure dwellings, in undisturbed resting place. That's what the kingdom of God looks like now because the kingdom of God is within us, as Jesus said when he came. And we look forward to that day when the kingdom of God is fully consummated where all these things will reign all the time. And then he concludes with this in verses 19 and 20. He's, let's read it. It seems a little out of place for what he's talking about, but we'll try to make some sense of it. He says this, And it will hail when the forest comes down, and the city will be utterly laid low. He says this right after he talks about this resting place. How blessed will you be, you who sow besides all waters, who let out freely the ox and the donkey. Isaiah does this a lot. If you're trying to read Isaiah, it's like, how does that fit in to this whole context thing here? And there's always a lot of things written about it. And, you know, fortunately, you know, we do a lot of studying and try to figure it out. And then we say, well, I, I think this is what he's talking about. But it looks like what he's saying here is that in the midst of Somebody that is given that, what, let's, let's stick to the text here, in, in particular the timing. So he's saying that God's spirit is going to come and he's going to give peace to those who trust in him. But at the same time, when God's spirit comes down to give peace, he also has to judge those who have not trusted him. And that's why he says, and it will hail when the forest comes down and the city will be utterly laid low. But on the positive side, how blessed Will you be when you sow besides all waters who let out freely the ox and the donkey? The person that's trusting in God gets this. Those that don't, they get judgment. So God gives mercy and grace to those who trust him. But at the same time, he gives judgment and condemnation to those who do not trust him. And that's what it's, it's talking about when hail comes down on the forest. It's destruction. And so that's Isaiah's message to Judah. What can we take from this from ourselves? And I just want to give us two points of, two, really just two things, not really application, more like things to think of to anchor your soul, which I started out at the beginning. Because I don't want you to lose hope in the midst of all the chaos that goes in our world because we have that hope. We have that blessed assurance. So let us not lose hope for number one, we have a righteous and just leader ruling now. And no, I am not talking about in the White House. It is in our house, our temple, the Lord God, Jesus Christ, now rules and reigns in the hearts of his people, doesn't he? It's said over and over in the New Testament, God, you know, you accepted the Lord into your He rules and reigns in your life. He is now ruling with righteousness and justice, even from his throne on heaven. God is working out his plan, even when it doesn't look like it. 
God has ordained the world to be as it is. We might not understand it, but God is working his plan. And there's going to be a time when he says, until I pour out my spirit. And we'll talk about that in a moment. But Jesus now rules and reigns with righteousness and justice. And so just a couple of verses that kind of speak to this hope. Because of that truth, in Romans 15, 13, the apostle Paul concludes his his writing to them in, verse, in chapter 15, he says, May the God of hope, so our God is a God of hope, may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in Him. That's where your hope and joy comes from. You're trusting in God. So that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. Because God has poured His Spirit down on you and you've turned to Him in faith, you now have that hope that assurance that you too will live with Christ, that you too have forgiveness of sin. And this gives you a, just a sense of overflowing of hope of the world. You have a good outlook on this world despite what's going on. And then again in 1 Peter 1-3, through 3, he says, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In His great mercy, He has given us a new birth, into a living hope. Again, that's your hope. You have a new birth through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. So because Jesus rose from the dead, you have that assurance that you too have this new birth and you too will rise from the dead, that you too will gain all that Christ has now. So that's point number one for us to think about because of this great hope that we have. We now have a righteous and just leader ruling now, but even more so, as I started out talking about, you know, we look forward to the end of the day or the weekend because, you know, it's just, it's filled with this hope that, you know, you're going to have all this great, great stuff going on. But just think of the end of this current age. We have this great hope, the assurance of the eternal reign of our righteous and just leader, where he comes and rules and reigns on this earth. You see, Jesus will return one day, and he will execute righteousness and justice. And this is depicted perfectly in the book of Revelation. Turn with me to Revelation, and let's look at chapter 19. And we're just going to read this in verses 1 through 6, because this is a description of when Christ returns. And you'll see side by side, mercy and justice and then judgment going side by side. Again, kind of coincides with what Isaiah said at the end of his his text in chapter 32. So in the book of Revelation, chapter 19, says this, After these things I heard something like a loud voice of a great multitude in heaven saying, Hallelujah, salvation and glory and power belong to our God because His judgments are true and righteous. For he has judged the great harlot who was corrupting the earth and her immorality, and he has avenged the blood of his bondservants on her. So there's that judgment. God is judging the world system that's described as a harlot, you know, Babylon, the beast. He's destroying that evil system that we presently live in. Right? And he's exacting judgment on it. He's avenging the blood of the saints that have been persecuted. 
And verse 3 says, And a second time they said, Hallelujah! Her smoke rises up forever and ever. These are the saints and probably angels praising God for judgment finally coming down on this earth. And the 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshiped God who sits on the throne saying, Amen, Hallelujah! And the voice came from the throne saying, Give praise to our God, all you His bondservants, you who fear Him, the small and the great. Then I heard something like the voice of a great multitude, and like the sound of many waters, and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, saying, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Again, this is God coming, ruling, and reigning for all eternity now. This is it. Let us rejoice and be glad. Give glory to Him, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and His bride has made herself ready. It was given to her to clothe herself in fine linen, bright and clean, for the fine linen is in the righteous acts of the saints. Then he said to me, Write, Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, These are true words of God. This is, this is true hope and assurance. He's like, Write this down, John, because this is going to happen. This is the hope, the true assurance. And we have that well as well as believers. We have Christ ruling and reigning in our hearts. One day he's going to rule and reign on this world. And again, even though he comes to rule and reign, we still have that judgment side because those who are not his, what's happening? Judgment is coming upon them. Jesus will return and execute righteousness and justice. And part of that justice is condemning those who have rejected him. It's kind of tough when you think about it because we all probably say, yes, Lord, come. We want righteousness and justice ruling. But we know that also means what? We might have friends and family who would be lost for all eternity, suffering in eternal darkness as they started out. Just think of that. They have, there's no hope. It's eternal, meaning forever and ever. That is a scary thought, even for maybe even for the person that you don't like. None of us want people to suffer by rejecting God. But the reality is, is they will. So it behooves us to go out and spread God's word, share God's love as much as we can in any way that we can, so that when Christ comes, you know, we're going to be like Isaiah saying, rise up, O complacent daughters, wake up. Don't let the temptations of this world blind you to the reality that Christ is going to come and rule and reign, that God lives and reigns now, and he will judge you. We need to be that prophet to this world, to those people in your own lives, those loved ones. We all, again, I know we all have family members, friends, neighbors, coworkers, maybe students at your school, who you know, if Christ came back today, what would happen to them? So we need to, not only we have this hope, but we need to share this hope with our loved ones. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you because faithful men have written it down, what you have said, to give us hope and a future because of what you have done. And we now have that same word of God in our midst, in our hearts. 
May you give us boldness to share that with others in a way that they would understand. Give us compassion and mercy and love to share the truth with them. And I pray this morning, Lord, for those of us who've trusted in you, that we would pin all of our trust, all of our faith and hope in you and your work. And it's not just wishful thinking, it is assurance. What you have done for us, sending your son to this world to die on the cross for our sins, atoning for just for us, for all that we've done against you and offering us eternal life. May we cling to that and trust in that and not in our own selves. May you help us, Lord, not to become complacent, not to look to the things in this world to trust in. May they not distract us and take our eyes and our hearts away from you. And when they do, may we quickly return to you. And Lord, we pray for our friends and family members and co-workers who do not know you, who've never trusted in you, who maybe are deceived by their own life, their own success, their own power and fame, other religious systems. May you awaken them. May you use us and other people around them to awaken them to the truth of your love so that they might have this hope that we have, that you've given to us. We thank you for your word. We thank you for that hope that one day you will come and rule and reign in righteousness and we will live at true peace. We will live quiet and tranquil lives for all eternity. And we will say with the elders, the 24 elders and the four living creatures, hallelujah and amen. We pray this now in your name. Amen.